Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Hey everyone, it's Alicia here. Some of you may have noticed that the podcast was MIA for the end of March 2021. I want to apologize for the delay. I actually was hospitalized due to COVID and I'm still recovering, but luckily I am on the mend. I received so many texts, emails, Facebook messages, and support from so many of you, and it really has been a bright spot while feeling so sick. Thank you all so much. The horse community is amazing, and I look forward to paying it forward. If there's one thing I've learned from all this, it's that you all are the best. I first heard of Dr. Sarah Malone, a teaching instructor at Rutgers University in New Jersey, in early 2020 when I visited Mind for a clinic. After the clinic, I signed up for their online video library and was watching some of their lectures and found Dr. Malone's to be super interesting. Her PhD research focused on equine forelimb asymmetries and factors that influence hoof shape, and a lot of it clicked with what I see in practice as well. I reached out to her to see if she would answer some questions about her various studies she has conducted, and she agreed. Um, so I thought we'd start in, you can tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the hoof itself and why you decided to make that, you know, make feet, horse feet, the subject of your dissertation. Yeah, so, well, I've had horses my whole life, and I did my master's on kind of more exercise physiology. So a little more related to, I guess you would call them nutraceuticals. And so when I finished up my master's, I wasn't sure I would continue on for my PhD. And I, I knew I wanted to do something different. So I went and worked with Hillary Clayton at Michigan State University. And so that really kind of got me more interested in biomechanics. And so I looked for a place where I could do my PhD in biomechanics. And um, it's actually pretty limited. So I think there was Michigan State, there was a French lab. I mean, you have to go somewhere with people who are accepting students and have money, right? So, and a lab in Australia. And so I decided to go to Australia and that was just, you know, I wanted to do biomechanics. I was not particularly attached to the hoof as my subject. And when I got there, my PhD professor, Helen Davies, was like, you can do anything on the distal forelimb. You know, we have somebody working on the knee. We have somebody kind of doing the fetlock. And so I decided to do the hoofs. So really kind of fell into that area, I guess. Um, But I have worked very closely with a farrier in my hometown uh, for most of, you know, my adult life. So, So it was a good fit. And I kind of went that direction and, you know, ran with it. So, you know, got focused on the foot. My PhD started looking at things that change hoof shape, which I probably didn't mention in my in my talk at Epona. So I looked at things like how does how does shoeing or trimming affect the shape of their feet, etc. And then about midway through, I kind of got sidetracked looking at asymmetries between the left and the right front feet. So that's the the direction that I went when I finished up. My thesis contains both of of those topics, kind of, and and I'm still doing a little bit of research on that today. Oh, that's really cool. And so I didn't realize that you went to, or you worked with um, Dr. Clayton and was it at MSU? Yeah. So um, I went there when I left Rutgers. So I did my master's at Rutgers. 
I had I had done my undergraduate at Michigan State, so I was familiar with the lab, but I had only like seen Dr. Clayton in passing. So when I left Rutgers, maybe 2008, she had a visiting scholar there from Belgium named Sandra Nollert. And Sandra was running a project on the development of posture and foals, like postural sway. So Sandra was not a horse person. So they basically hired me to do all the data collection for the summer. Um, And so it was a big project. We looked at foals from birth until they were over a year old. And we put them on a horse plate and looked at how their postural sway changed as they aged. So she's published that, I believe. And then the second part of that study was videotaping the foals. And we looked at how their movement developed. So we, for example, we videotaped them every day until they were several months old, I believe. And then once a month until they were a year old. Um, And we tried to get walk, trot, canner on the video. And then we analyzed that. And I'm, to be honest, I'm not sure that she ever published that part of the study. But so I was right at Michigan State in the lab before, probably several years before Dr. Clayton retired. I had hoped to stay there and do my PhD, but the funding situation just didn't didn't work out. So I, um, I went to Australia instead. Oh, that's so cool. And did you, did you meet Dr. Bowker there too? Yeah. Um, I didn't, didn't interact with him too much while I was there. Um, and then when I applied for a job in Kentucky, oh, I, I was trying to think, where did I meet Dr. Bowker? He actually, right after I went to Australia, we hosted a barefoot hoof conference. It was called like the hoof or something, Australia. It was a barefoot conference. And Dr. Balker came and talked for that. Um, and so that's where I really met him more. And he actually loaned me some props when I interviewed in Kentucky and, and things like that. So uh, we know each other, uh, you know, a little bit better now. But yeah, we've met a few times. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, he's been on the podcast too. So that's really cool. Yeah, right. yeah, he does some neat stuff. Yeah. Um, okay, so sorry, I got like That's sidetracked okay. on all those, but I've watched your talk with Opponent Mind a few times as part of their online, you know, education mm-hmm. component on their website, and I was really interested in the research that you did, obviously on on hooves. So just to kind of start us off and get everybody listening up to date, so you found that the external hoof capsule itself. Um, in general, isn't perfectly symmetrical, which, you know, I don't think is a shock to anyone, um, you know, that are hoof care professionals. Um, But can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you found that and what you saw from your analysis of those solar views of the foot that you took and the dorsal views? Yeah. So again, I started kind of looking at things that changed hoof shape. And, And just to give you a little bit of background, there were two people in the lab before me Devereaux and the other woman's last name is Peel. And they have both published papers looking specifically at galloping. And I apologize ahead of time because I imagine this will like lead to another offshoot. <laughs> um, so, so their research showed that horses that were in race training, their foot became smaller and obviously the angle decreased the longer they were in race training. And they attributed that, at least my my reading of it was that they attributed that to the horses galloping. So I had grown up with people saying that thoroughbreds had terrible feet, etc. And so I said, well, but they have shoes on. And so then when they took these horses and they, Australia calls it, spelled them, when they rested them and put them out on pasture, their feet went back to the size they were previously. And I said, well, but they also took their shoes off, right? Yeah. <laughs> so 
So I started looking at what effect shoes had. And I actually just published that about a year ago. And so, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't really looking at the asymmetries, except that I had been kind of interested in handedness personally as a rider for a long time. Um, And so I was just measuring a lot of horse feet. I always did the left and the right front feet. Sometimes I did hind feet. I noticed that the farriers were, at least I felt like they were trying to make them more symmetrical. And, And you mentioned that, that the client is like, you know, why don't they look the same? Why are their feet asymmetrical? And so then I started looking a little bit more into that. If first from kind of a gross anatomical perspective, right, you're looking at their feet and they appear to be different. And, you know, just like you mentioned, the farriers were all like, well, we already know that. And I thought, well, that's great. But no one has like, written about like no one has published anything about it so so that's kind of how I headed down that path and then I had this thought in my mind that you know the foot that was bigger the horse would put more pressure on it and that's why it had become bigger and so was it related to handedness or had they had a previous injury you know something like that and so I kind of went down that rabbit hole to the best of my ability I guess and so the external hoof capsule So I measure proximal hoof circumference, which is kind of strange and not a lot of people do that. And I did it because the two women that I mentioned before who had graduated from the lab in Melbourne, that's what they measured. And so proximal hoof circumference is just around the coronary band uh, with a seamstress tape. And it takes some practice. I mean, you you couldn't just do it and and be repeatable or good at it uh, right away. But I'm fairly good at it after doing hundreds of of feet right Right. and so they had found that the hoof got smaller and that's kind of weird because that's not something that you're trimming right that's the coronary band so why is it getting smaller when they're racing or when they're wearing shoes or whatever and so in terms of symmetry the left and the right foot are almost never the same size as a matter of fact my thoroughbred that I have right now out in the snow his feet are were last time I measured them exactly the same which is like I I have no idea. I I couldn't hazard a guess, but it almost never happens, right? (laughs) So, so that, you know, that's kind of unusual. And when I was at Epona and I mentioned that somebody, I think maybe Tammy was like, oh, he's ambidextrous. Like he goes fine left and right. And I was like, well, he doesn't really because he raced, he raced 97 times. So (laughs) I'm sure he has some like weird arthritic problems but um so that was kind of an interesting aside in terms of his handedness so most horses are not equal and most do not have an equal hoof angle but of course the the toe angle so i just use a hoof gauge that measures you know there's a horseshoe shape that fits the bottom of the foot and a a bar that rests on the toe um and that has some inherent problems but that's what I used at the time and their hoof angle between their left and right foot is usually not identical the gauge only measures like in whole degrees. So you don't see as much difference as you would in circumference. So, you know, I kind of became more interested in that. Um, There's other things like the heel height is usually not the same. And some of those things you can change by trimming, like hoof angle obviously changes quite a bit with trimming and other things you can't like proximal hoof circumference. So I think we can say that there's definitely a difference. And again, most people wouldn't argue with me. I think the argument comes in, what we're going to do about it or if we're going to do something or what that difference means, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I have a bunch of questions about the symmetry, but you're right. I do have a question Mm -hmm. about what you're saying about, you know, shoes and the circumference of the foot. So I 
last year watched a talk with Dr. Taylor where she published the effect of high mileage, like barefoot high mileage on thoroughbreds Mm. and like positive hoof morphology. I I actually don't know the exact name, but she was talking about it. Is that like similar to something that you were doing or that you published last year? Or can you tell us a little bit about that study? I'm actually, I haven't looked at her paper and I probably should make a, I'm actually running a journal club this semester, so I should make a note to look it up. And I'm familiar with her work, but not in, in that area, more kind of in the laminitis area. So I'll have to take a look at that. But what what the previous two people, uh, I think it was Virginie Devicrew and Jenny Peel or something like that, they, I feel like they both only measured one foot. So let's say the left front foot is what they were using. I and mean, they have quite a bit of research. I, I feel pretty confident in saying that the hoof gets smaller when they're in race training and the angle gets less steep. So it becomes whatever the opposite of steep is, I guess. So if you had a, a whatever, if you had a 50 degree hoof angle, it goes down to 45 or, you know, something. And so I following up from that was like, well, what about the horseshoes? Like I really felt that the horseshoes were the, were the problem, if you will, not necessarily that these horses were galloping. And so I did a few things. I, I did a short study where I did run them on the treadmill and look at their feet like immediately as soon as I brought them off the treadmill. And we do still see some changes. So galloping probably also plays a part. And I mean, obviously, the type of movement they're doing is, is going to change what their foot looks like, right? But for me, I'm like, well, they're only galloping for like half an hour a day, right? <laughs> you know? so, yeah. But they have these shoes on the whole time. And so I came... I came back to Michigan for a summer, um, and there's a, a young girl here who works at a cutting horse breeding farm that raises really, like, world champion cutting horses. But they have babies born every year. And I said, look, you know, this is a group of a decent number of horses. Would you mind if I put shoes on half of them and left shoes off of half of them? And the owners of the farm, you know, agreed and everything. And so that was, was really a, an excellent setup. Um, so I think, I don't remember, to be honest, I think we started with 12 and I, I lost one, like one horse had to be dropped from the study, but I basically split them in half, put front shoes on half of these broodmares and left the other half barefoot. And so they're all in a very similar environment. You know, they're, they're most, they didn't all have folds on them, which is a, maybe a matter of contention, but for the most part, they are like sedentary broodmares. <laughs> so they just go out and eat. They come in their cell at night. They, they're either pregnant or not. They have a foal at their side, whatever. And so then after the shoeing cycle, and I'd have to look back, I feel like it was six weeks, the farrier came, removed their shoes, and we swapped the group of horses. And so then each horse acted as its own control. Wow. So I, I compared their feet over that six-week period when they were wearing shoes versus when they were barefoot. And the interesting thing is that proximal hoof circumference, which shouldn't be related to trimming at all, right, still got smaller when they were wearing shoes. And, wow. of course, the hoof angle decreased. So, so it kind of confirmed, at least in my opinion, that we probably have some limiting effect of the shoe. So the hoof angle, you know, most farriers, I think, would agree. Of course, it doesn't change as much because the shoe is protecting the toe from wearing. And so then the toe just gets longer and the angle gets less steep, right? Right. So that's pretty, I guess, not surprising. But the proximal hoof circumference was kind of strange. And it's still still interesting. Um, I think it probably has to do with feedback from the hoof because it's being protected by the shoe, right? 
that's still my kind of running theory. And my PhD supervisor has now become very, I don't want to say obsessed, but she's <laughs> become very interested in fascial connections and things like that. So that probably is what we're actually looking at, right? Oh, so um, like the myofascial tension in the body or something or? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what she's thinking. I was thinking originally like a proprioceptive feedback right from the hoof. And they were just standard keg shoes, so they were still open at the heel. Because, of course, the other thing that we know is that the heel expands when it hits the ground, right? Yeah. But the shoe probably does limit that expansion more than it would on a barefoot horse, for example. So, I don't know. It was just kind of an interesting thing. I, I did just publish it in an, the journals called Animals. Um, so, it's, it's open source. You're welcome to, to take a look at it. I just thought that was kind of a... I'm personally neither pro, you know, either, neither for or against horseshoes. But I do think that uh, we probably have some consequences that maybe we haven't really thought about. Yeah. And I think there's been more and more talk about that recently, even on, you know, uh, farrier pages of people Mm -hmm. who shoe every single day and talking about how to mitigate some of the, you know, things that we see happening to the hoof when they're shod back to back to back. And, um, you know, yeah. I'm sure. And, you know, Mark Caldwell, I did some work with Mark Caldwell in the UK several years ago. And so him and I go back and forth because he'll post a foot that, that I think looks just terrible and has shoes on. And I'll say, but can't you just like take the shoes off for a little while, you know? So we're, you know, kind of arguing back and forth about it. And we have very different perceptions of it uh, because I'm not a farrier. So, I mean, I will trim my own horse's feet, but that that's about it. So, you know, we're looking at it through a different lens, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. I'll have to look that up. Um, your study, I mean, (laughs) yeah. And so kind of like, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but kind of going back to the, the asymmetry in the hoof capsule, I think, um, in your talk with Epona, you first started talking about or addressing like on an individual foot, you know, maybe like a steep side and a more flare side on the foot itself, not even comparing yet, you know, the right front to the left front. And you found some commonalities between, feet on multiple horses or cadavers, I guess, right? Yeah, so so my work that I have done with Epona is, is kind of, I guess, a little bit different. And so they, at least at first, in my opinion, they were less interested in, in bilateral asymmetry, left versus right. They're more interested in, in interlimb asymmetry, right? So the difference between P3 or whatever, P3 is not a great example, but the difference between the lateral and medial side of like P1, for example. Yeah. Um, And so I started doing some of that with them. I haven't done nearly as much as I have done left versus right asymmetry, but I do think it's important to note that there is a a medial lateral asymmetry to almost every distal limb, right? Uh, Or just bone bone in the distal limb. I was just looking quickly to try to pull that up. And it did align, I don't have it in front of me, but it did align with what I'd seen at the solar aspect. So however the bone was, you know, tilted within the the horse or whatever that asymmetry was like, it also kind of followed down all the way to the foot. So, you know, for example, the medial wall of the hoof is steeper, right, than the lateral wall. So you could all you could see when looking at the bones how that would kind of follow down. Um, and I think that both are important. I think the left-right symmetry is an important in terms we need to ask ourselves like do we need to be matching the left and the right front limb you know trying to make them look the same 
And then, you know, are we trying to get the hoof capsule symmetrical on, say, just the left front foot? Um, and I think that both are probably impractical. And probably in reality, farriers are, are not trying to do at least the second one. You know, they know that the, the medial side is a little bit steeper. The lateral side is, is less steep, for example. Uh, some of John and Monique's stuff looks at where the frog sits, you know, being a little bit more to one side, I think. So... So there's some asymmetry just in, in each individual leg as well. Yeah. I think that's natural, just like I think the left-right asymmetry is natural. So humans, for example, we have one limb that is heavier than the other limb, and that's our dominant arm. Okay. So your dominant arm, the bones actually physically weigh more, um, which is what I looked at between left versus right. And those bones are not perfectly symmetrical. And so I, I don't think that it's not wrong. And probably people have inherently known it for a long time. And just, again, nobody's bothered to really record it at least very well. Yeah. And do you think, and you don't feel like you have to answer this if you haven't really looked into it, but do you think that the asymmetry of the hoof capsule has to do with the horse's weight bearing, like their movement or how they're loading that foot? Yeah. So that's what I thought initially. So I, I will preface that by saying that very young foals already have asymmetry, right? So, and, and that's not something that I've looked at, but Van Heel, that was the Van Heel paper that, that even at birth, their feet were not, they were not symmetrical. Um, and then that asymmetry got worse as they got older. And they tried to limit their, their handling of those foals. They certainly weren't riding them. So again, I think that there's asymmetry in the population. And people will argue, I look back at my PhD defense, and it says something like wild horses are quite symmetrical. I don't know where I got that from. Naturally, I didn't cite it in my, my <laughs> PhD defense, because I don't even know that we know that. You know, I know Brian Hampson quite well. And, and he's always said to me, like, oh, they're much more symmetrical than the domestic horse. But a lot of Brian's research only looked at one limb. So I don't know. You know? Yeah. So, but most people think that the wild horse is more symmetrical. It's fine. Is it more symmetrical because we're not riding it? Because the gene pool is different, you know? We know that club-footedness, for example, is pretty heritable. So, you know, we've got some other things maybe in the gene pool that those those wild herds don't have. So Van Heel proposed that it, I, I thought this was crazy when I saw it at first, <laughs> that it was because of how they graze when they're babies. So they graze, I don't know if you've seen this before, but they graze with one foot forward. Yeah. And so when I was a kid, there was this old horse breeder in the area and, and he raised Arabians and he said, oh, they have big feet, like flat feet, so they could walk on the sand better. And they have one foot that's clubby because that's the foot that's always like, I don't know which way it goes, but let's say that's the one that's protracted while they're eating. Right. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this guy is like out of his mind. But Van Heel looked at that as well and, and said it probably does have something to do with the way they stretch one leg forward while they're eating. So I think that it gets worse as they age because of how they're loading. Um, but I do think there's bone differences. And so that's kind of impacting it. The work that I did with Mark Caldwell, I went there because they had a force plate that I could use or a pressure mat, not a force plate. And I thought that if I used ponies, like cob type ponies, if the pony's left foot was bigger, so he had a bigger proximal hoof circumference, then they would load more on that foot, 
right? And that either I, who knows, chicken or egg, like, is that why it's bigger or that's why it loads more, you know? Yeah. But I thought that there would be that connection. And I did see a little bit of that. I could only use six ponies. So, you know, that was kind of disappointing. And other people have tried to do similar things. And it's all over the board. Some people are like, there's absolutely no difference. I think Hillary Clayton originally told me there was no difference, but they were using a horse plate. So it's hard to separate out each foot. You know, where a pressure mat, you get like a whole profile of what loading looks like. And then recently, I went to Australia maybe two winters ago, and she presented there and was talking about how they do load differently between their left and their front right front foot, for example. So I think that we're still kind of working on that. I think you have two things. I think either they're they're asymmetrical and it gets worse as they get older. And so then they're loading differently. And maybe it gets worse just because they're growing bigger. Maybe it gets worse because they were injured. Maybe it gets worse because you always ride them to the left. I don't know. But I think that absolutely the the foot's going to respond to how it's loading. So there was a Sue Dyson paper looking at like morphometrics of the foot in horses that had had some injury or something you know and you see big differences from that so and that was my interest I mean should we try to make them more symmetrical will that keep them from going lame you know things like that sometimes I hear owners who want their horse's feet to look the same but how much of that can we actually affect and at what point is it detrimental to the foot to try to force symmetry I asked Dr. Malone about this to get her thoughts. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, do you think that, you know, trying to force that symmetry has any kind of benefits or? I don't know. I I feel like, I feel like we're just doing the same thing over. And, and again, I'm not a farrier, but, you know, if you're a farrier, I mean, don't you feel like you're trying to even the feet up and then in six weeks you're doing exactly the same thing again. And in six weeks you're doing the same yeah, thing again. So, right. And so I don't, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if we didn't do that, if we just let it go wild. I think people are like, oh my gosh, it would be terrible. But maybe it wouldn't, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I can tell you that mine have some asymmetries, I'm sure. And lately they've not been trimmed much and they're doing okay. But I also have scenarios, you know, I have a Arab gelding that we bred and raised and he's got one foot that's pretty clubby and the other foot is huge. I mean, he must, if he, if they put shoes on him, it must be like three sizes difference. Right. Wow. And I think that that other foot got so big because it's compensating for the club foot. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, and so a little girl rides him and sometimes he can't get him to like pick the correct lead and stuff. And I'm like, well, he's got this like huge dinner plate strapped. On, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I think in that case, trying to mediate it is probably better. But I, you know, if I were a farrier, I think I would get sick of like fighting this battle. Right. So. So I, I think they became that way for a reason. So, you know, I mentioned total limb asymmetry of like a high-low horse, right? So a high hoof angle versus a low hoof angle and how I think it's their way of compensating for something else. So maybe one of the bones in the high leg is too short or something, you know, and so the body's trying to compensate by making that up at the hoof level. And so in that case, trimming them, to be equal is definitely not going to work right and you'll see this sometimes where you like you know you put a different angle on the foot or you put a wedge pad on the horse or something and it goes spectacularly lame and I think that's because it was trying it was compensating okay on its own and then you tried to even it up and now it's in a lot of pain you know so yeah um, so I don't know I mean I I don't think I can I don't think anybody could say you know if if we're doing 
I think it's a horse by horse basis, you know, so you know your horses that you work with and some of them do well being evened up and some of them probably need to be left a little bit. Um, What I will say is I do think that horses benefit from some time out of shoes. You know, I'm not pro or against shoes. My, some of my horses wear shoes, some do not wear shoes. You know, that's another, another individual choice. But I do think that the horses I worry about are the horses that are wearing shoes like every single day of their lives for 10 years, you know, (laughs) so like the the show horses or cutting horses or whatever. And I realize that you pull the shoes off and you've worked so hard to get the foot to look one way and suddenly it looks a different way. But I do think that they need a break from wearing their shoes all the time. Yeah, I I think that there's a, a lot to be said for kind of just, you know, letting them be horses. And it's not just that their shoes were pulled off, for example, they're also outside. You know, when we talk about show horses, or race horses, you know, and I said, well, maybe my friends thought it was the galloping exercise, I thought it was the shoes, maybe it's just being in the stall all the time, or what they're fed, or you know what I mean, there's a million things that can play into it. So yeah, right. And, and kind of going back a little bit, because you were talking about the foals and asymmetry in foals. Um, mm-hmm. Did you did you just mean uh, bilateral in terms of their front feet are asymmetrical or actually like the coffin bone itself is asymmetrical from from birth and it gets worse as they. So the the so when I presented this for Epona Mind, I, I said to John and Monique, like, I think it's a little bit confusing. Like I'm my thing is bilateral asymmetry, but their thing is more like individual limb asymmetry. Right. So, so we did struggle with that. Uh, I think there's been more done on left-right asymmetry. So I'm just going to look really quick um, for that paper. So the Van Heel paper, there were several, um, they must have been graduate students at Utrecht. It, and so they each had like a part of the study where they followed these young horses from babies until they actually, I think they followed them up into a sport horse career. And so it has a few different authors. It's not just Van Heel. And Willem, Willem Back would be the, the like lead author on all of them. So if you, if you look them up, you'd, you'd probably find them under his name. Um, I'm just going to type in quickly uneven feet and horses. So I think they did radiographs. Um, and it's, it's pretty old work. The lateralized motor behavior leads to increased unevenness in the front feet and asymmetry in athletic performance. That's one of the Van Heel papers. Uneven feet may develop as a consequence of lateral grazing, heritability of uneven feet. So that one, the heritability of foot conformation, it's Ducro, D-U-C-R-O. That paper, I think, if I recall correctly, they looked at like stallions going through a test. And so uneven feet was just a visual thing. So you looked at them and you said that horse has uneven feet. And what I think they're, they're, they mean by that is the hoof angles were not even. So maybe one foot was a little bit different or even at the extreme being clubby, right? Yeah. But the stuff that was done at Utrecht, uh, that was radiographs, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so they looked at hoof angle from the radiograph. Um, but they might have done some other stuff that I don't remember, like looking at P1 or P2, some unevenness there. Less people have looked at interlimb, as in like, are the medial and lateral side of P1 equal? Yeah. And the only other person there's someone, do you know Simon? Simon Curtis? The Curtis, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, in the UK, he yeah. did some work with Foles. 
Um, he did some uneven stuff too. Or looking at full hoof shape, maybe. I don't know if he actually looked at asymmetries, but he did something with full feet. And I remember thinking that that had something to do with asymmetries as well. So that, you know, that kind of falls in there as well. I think just less people have looked at P1 versus, you know, the medial lateral side. I did a different study, which I think is what I presented at Epona, where I took cadaver limbs of unknown origin <laughs> and I, I matched them up. And I looked at the bones in, in those limbs. And I was looking at left versus right asymmetry. Um, but they probably, if I went back and looked at photos and stuff, there's quite a bit of lateral medial asymmetry as well. Yeah, I thought, and I'd have to go back and watch it again, but I thought you had mentioned too that, you know, P3 isn't perfectly symmetrical, unless you meant just P3 of right front versus left front. So the stuff that Epona, that I did for Epona, that Mike Savaldi, the the work that, so the stuff that Mike Savaldi uh, worked with them on showed that basically the limbs in each leg are not symmetrical, lateral versus medial. And that includes P3 in that, and I don't remember, but let's say that I think the lateral side extends farther back. You know what I mean? So instead of the sole of it being kind of uh, horseshoe in shape, the bone extends further down on the lateral side towards the back, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think a picture a picture is probably a better thing to look at. Um, and then they focused quite a bit on P1 having a twist to it. And so it's not sitting straight in the leg. I've thought about this a lot. Um, and I think it makes sense because I don't think that our bones sit perfectly straight in our leg you know there's a little bit of a twist to some of the bones and um and so that's really what what that's focusing on and, and they're focusing on it from the standpoint of you know why are the horseshoes symmetrical if the leg isn't symmetrical <laughs> you know? yeah so, and they were they told me one that they didn't used to be symmetrical so you used to buy horseshoes as like a left horseshoe or a right horseshoe and then at some point that went away, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and so people did inherently know that they weren't the same, just like our feet. I, I mean, obviously our feet aren't symmetrical because they don't look like a horse foot. But I, I mean, we need a left and a right shoe, right? So, you know, I think people knew that. And I'm sure that a lot of farriers, when they're, when they're forging shoes or shaping shoes, they shape them a little differently, you know? I've never seen a farrier just make four identical shoes and nail them on, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, they're probably still doing it on their own. Um, but I just think, you know, sometimes we know something a hundred years ago and then, I don't know, we, we get all caught up in the modern technology and we kind of lose track of what we were doing maybe. Right. Yeah. And you had also looked at the cannon bone weight, didn't you? Between mm -hmm. one limb and the other or just in the cannon bone weight and the... Yeah. Between, between one limb and the other. So when I did the, the cadavers, I called it the cadaver study um, that I haven't published. <laughs> I just, I took all these cadaver limbs. I matched up left and right and I dissected them. So I measured them all first. I didn't measure them on a live horse. That is a, I think probably a step back. It would have been nice to measure and radiograph them on a live horse and then, then be able to dissect them. But anyway, so I, I got these cadaver limbs from a, from an abattoir dissected them, boiled them down, dried them, etc. So that I ended up with pairs of bones left and right. And I mean, there's a lot of things going on. You know, you could argue that like one wasn't dry or, you know, whatever, argue whatever you want. But, <laughs> but there's quite, there's quite a bit of different research saying that one cannon bone, so third metacarpal, is longer than the other. 
and horses. And you can see that on a radiograph. I could see that with my bones. And I hate to say it wrong. I always get it mixed up. I think the right one is slightly longer. I'd have to look back at my PhD. <laughs> so, but one is a little bit longer. So when I learned about that, people attribute it to all sorts of things. What direction they race on a racetrack, what, whatever. <laughs> Some people would contribute it to handedness. So what I can tell you, you know, I, I always get kind of mystified when people look at a bone and they're like, well, that's a right-handed horse. Okay, maybe, but we can't ask the horse like which yeah. limb he prefers. So it's a little bit more difficult, I think, to figure out than that. But we know, for example, that, that let's say all the right cannon bones tend to be a little bit longer. And I saw that as well with my cadaver limbs. And then what people haven't done, because they mostly are working off x-rays, is actually like, done anything with the bones and so I weighed the bones I did other things like specific gravity all sorts of crazy things but the weights were different um, and so in short one bone tends to be shorter and heavier and the other bone tends to be longer and a little bit thinner um, and in humans we know that the limb with the heavier bones is your dominant limb and that makes sense because you're using it more and so it's remodeling more, right? And the bone becomes a little bit thicker. So that made sense. And so to me, it would make more sense to look at the limb with the heavier bone and say, mm, that could be, you know, the dominant limb. And then what I wanted to do with my cadaver limbs was relate that to proximal hoof circumference because that's something I can measure on a live horse, right? And so if I, and I'll have to look back again, but I think that the leg with the bigger hoof circumference was the leg with the heavier cannon bone. Yeah, I think and I so, saying so, that. Yeah, and so that would tell me that that horse was right limb dominant. Okay? And other research has, has claimed that most horses are right limb dominant, for example. And then that's why it was funny that I think Tammy mentioned something about my horse being ambidextrous, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, because his limbs were, were equal. And obviously I haven't weighed his bones, but that would be interesting if, if something tragic were to befall him out there. You know, so that's, that's kind of my thought is, is that each horse is going to have his own preference, right? Left or right, just like humans. And then my thought is, do we need to accommodate that in chewing them? Is it going to make them more or less successful? So in Australia, the different states run different directions on the racetrack. I don't know if you know that. But no, I didn't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so and I have no idea which state runs which direction. But let's say that Victoria runs the same direction we run, which would be counterclockwise, right? And um, New South Wales runs clockwise. Okay? And so in a place like that, where different tracks run different directions if you had a horse that was really right dominant and I don't know I nobody has done the research to say that a horse that's right dominant goes better left or right I don't know uh, but let's say he's really right dominant and he can't run to the right he runs better to the left you could just move him right to a different track so I, I kind of had that thought um, I also think that there are some things that make it worse so maybe an injury so there are a lot of natural asymmetries, but when you start getting into really severe asymmetries, that's telling me that maybe something's happened. And so those are the animals I think we should be looking for. I did this presentation once for a group of horse breeders in Canada, and I felt like they were very dissatisfied. Like they wanted me to tell them like how to fix this problem. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I don't know. I don't, that wasn't what I thought I was doing here, you know? 
But um, I will say that I would be very hesitant, for example, to buy a young horse that I wanted to be successful as a racehorse or a show horse that had very big asymmetries. And again, no one's qualified what really big is. But to me, that would be like more than 5% difference between left and right. And we do see that. So when I looked at my cadaver limbs, I think I've got something in there that shows like, you know, most of them are pretty close to equal, which I think really we could probably call equal because there's some measurement error, right? And then there's quite a bit in that like 1% difference range, which is probably natural. And then there's a few that are in a 5 or 10% difference in the size of their left foot versus their right. And I just think those animals are going to struggle, right? Yeah. Um, there's some human research, you know, we have one leg that's longer than the other. But for people who have like more than a, I don't know what it is, let's say a millimeter difference, the, their chances of getting osteoarthritis in the other knee is really high because they're essentially always walking downhill on that leg, right? Because it's shorter. So, you know, so I do think that those animals are probably the ones that we should take a look at. And, you know, I used to take my students to the yearling sales. No one even like pays attention to those horses' feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So there's so many other things going on. And even I, you know, I just bought a young horse sight on scene. Um, you know, I don't know what his feet are going to look like when I get him. So, I, you know, you just hope that, that it's going to be okay. But we maybe should be giving that a bit more consideration. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, the equivalent of like limb length disparity. And I actually just talked about this with my vet like a month ago. Like how, how common is actual limb length disparity in horses and does it affect them? Is that something that we should be like looking more into as farriers or vets? Yeah. So I, I think it depends on who you talk to. So, you know, I've had farrier friends or vet friends that are like, Oh, it's super common. I see it all the time. And I had a horse that I wish I still had the horse. Um, when you looked at his shoulders, you could tell that one side of his, you know, his left shoulder was way sticking up much higher than his right shoulder. And he had a lot of asymmetries in his hoof. So my argument is that hooves are trying to compensate, right, for the fact that one leg is shorter than the other. I think in reality, very severe differences are probably on are probably uncommon. You know, I did some work looking at yearling radiographs of yearling racehorses. And so, you know, they were films. That's how old they were. <laughs> um, you know, and I might have presented that at Epona as well. You know, but it was a pretty good data set in that I had their race performance record. And I wasn't able to come up with any, like, concrete things. You know, I couldn't say that the horses with asymmetries did terrible because, of course, there's so many other things. Some of them never raced. Some of them, you know, colicked or something. So, but I've always thought in the back of my mind that if you could control it properly, you'd find that those horses that were really asymmetrical really struggled to be competitive, you know, so because they are putting more strain on one leg. And so my horse, here's just like a personal antidote, right? So he, he was a national show horse, which always traumatizes people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I uh, this big, tall, gangly thing, you know, big, big giraffe neck. And I noticed that when I was riding him, he really struggled to canter going one direction. I mean, it's like he couldn't get his feet under him. He always, I always felt like he was slipping towards the outside and he was going to fall. And I think that that was because the shorter leg was on the inside. And so he was struggling to balance. 
So I kept him on a really short shooting interval. And I noticed that if I went too long, things like fell apart very quickly. <laughs> so, and we did play around. I had a really hard time convincing any of the farriers to help me. But we did play around with like putting a just a pad in one foot so that one shoe was thicker than the other shoe. And I do think that that helped him. Now, my warning, I guess, to farriers or vets or whoever is that you may be causing damage, right? So so that's the solution for people whose legs are different lengths. They give them one shoe with a big insert, right? My concern is that then am I putting too much strain on the other leg or the other knee or whatever, you know? So I do think that you have to be cautious, um, but probably short term or if you're, you know, like, if my horse was just a pleasure horse, right? So, I mean, I'm not sure how much damage I was doing to him. Would I want to like three day event or race on a horse that was like that? Maybe not. (laughs) I think it just, it totally depends on what you're doing. And then on the other hand, I've had horses where I've argued, like you need to wedge this foot and they've gone terribly lame. Like it really put too much strain on them and they couldn't compensate. And those are horses that they're, you know, no radiographic evidence of what they look like above the knee. But to me, they look pretty normal. And they're just their feet are different. And then when you try to like wedge one foot to correct the angle, for example, it just falls apart. So I think we need to consider it, we need to be really cautious and and trying to make it work. I mean, I've had my fair, my poor farriers, right? (laughs) I've had them like put a wedge on a horse and then take the shoe right back off because the horse was you know, so awkward afterwards. Oh, so yeah, yeah, you know, so I'm sure they all hate me. It's no wonder my barrier won't come back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I, I think that you, you just ha- you have to be willing to to play around a little and um, find what works, you know, for for every single horse, which I realize is is difficult to do, you know, yeah, yeah. and I think you you kind of started to answer my next question, and i I've I think I've asked all of the like main questions that I had okay. in regards to your research, but you mm-hmm. know, sort of the, the last question I had was, you know, obviously you've looked at all this research about their bones and their limb asymmetry and um, hoof asymmetry. And so with all your research on this, do you have sort of a takeaway to farriers or vets or even owners? Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of times less is more. You know, I, I mentioned to you that people would be appalled to, to know that my young horses, particularly, I, I don't do much with because they're pretty structurally sound. Um, and so I don't need to do a lot with them. Obviously, if I had a foal that was born with really bad flexural deformities, I would have to, you know, jump in there. But for the most part, I think that we probably worry about it too much, <laughs> so, you know, and so I think that that maybe making small changes is better. I think that in terms of a takeaway for horse owners is that it takes time. You know, I might be looking at the differences over a six week period and they're very, very small. You know, the, their poor farrier cannot make a change or fix a problem. And, you know, they're not going to necessarily get immediate results. So I think you need to be patient and, you know, really talk to them about it. Um, I do think that horses benefit from some time without their shoes on. (laughs) And I think that for some horses, that answer might be to go with a different type of shoe, you know, like a plastic shoe or something, so that it's not limiting that deformation as much, maybe. We don't know. We haven't done that research, but that might be a good option. And in terms of the asymmetry, 
I think that it's, it's natural and most horses can deal with it fine. You know, we had a farrier when I was very small and my mom had an endurance horse that was club footed and she said, what should we do about it? And he said, the horse has lived like this its whole life. You know, <laughs> so, right. uh, the horse is, is learning to compensate for it, you know. And I mean, will that give it more arthritis further down the line? Maybe. But I think we need to kind of look at what how they're compensating and kind of work from there. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was so great. And I mean, oh my goodness, I, I have like so many more things I'd love to learn and like ask you and figure out at some point. Well, again, thank you so much. This was great. And I've loved talking to you. It was really fascinating. Um, Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. It was good talking to you and and you uh, have a good afternoon. Thanks. You too. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person, and chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too, so we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.